Welcome to another episode of whatever we're calling this, the podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Dr. Yahaira Padilla to talk about her latest book. Dr. Padilla is a professor at the University of Arkansas, and she holds a bachelor from the University of California in Santa Cruz, and of course, a PhD from the University of California in San Diego. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Yahaira Padilla. Dr. Padilla, thank you for accepting the invitation. Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. No, and thank you for coming. Uh, in the last episode, we were talking about what is home, uh, the sense of belonging. We were talking about immigration experiences, uh, Hispanic students uh, in the graduate school programs. Uh, but in all this sense of belonging, there is something that we missed. Who is not present in Latinx culture? Who is not present as uh, the whole idea of, of Latin people? So that's why Dr. Padilla is with us today. She wrote the book From Threatening Guerrillas to Forever Illegals, U.S. Central Americans on the Cultural Politics of Non-Belonging. So the first question that I have for you, Dr. Padilla, is what inspired you to write this book? So thank you, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's both, you know, it's well my personal political right and has to do with like kind of just my research trajectory which probably can't be separated um but i think on one hand you know um there is a need i think for more conversation and and discussion about um central american communities in the united states um and the you know the fact that um we comprise a, a quickly growing subset of the Latinx population. And when I say this, of course, we're talking about populations from seven countries, even though, you know, in my own research and this book, I focus primarily on Salvadoran, Guatemalan, and Honduran, right? But obviously there's a lot of heterogeneity, right? Like a lot of differences. Um, but um, I think that as, generations right are growing and becoming more you know going through the system and maturing right there's more conversation about the need for who are central americans right and their experiences at the same time um we have a lot of discussion around immigration politics right now right and in the last several years that focuses on populations from the so-called Northern Triangle, right? You know, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, right? And that it is not possible any longer to, even though there's still a discourse of like, oh, everybody's Mexican that crosses the border, right? We we know that that's not true, especially with Venezolanos and like with Haitianos and like, you know, just different groups and even, you know, African and Indian populations coming through the Southern border. But in terms of Latinx populations, I think, you know, definitely Central Americans have been central to the last several years. And so on one hand, I thought, you know, there is an intervention to be made and I'm not the only one making it. There's a lot of scholars doing this. On the other hand, it comes from a discussion of like, 
you know, within Central American studies, which is, you know, an, an up and coming field, this idea of whether or not Central Americans are invisible, right, or visible, right, and there is a very kind of, like, you know, very theoretical idea about invisibility as not represented, right, um, as lack of representation in, in Latino politics in particular, in identity politics. But I was kind of, you know, working with that idea, but also noting the fact that, but we are visible, right? We have been visible in certain media and representation. And for me, the idea is it's not that we're not visible, it's that our experiences aren't legible because people don't really, you know, know enough about it. Um, and I wanted to kind of show the ways in which we have been visible, even though it's problematic, but kind of saying, no, this is not a question of not, you know, not being visible in certain ways. It's just the way in which we're read, right? That doesn't necessarily translate, right? In, into kind of this other form of representation, which is access, right? To identity and politics, right? And, and integration, um, social integration. So, I mean, and that's the one hand. And of course, you know, as, as someone who is uh, US Central American and who grew up, right? Constantly saying, I'm not Mexican. <laughs> there is that kind of per personal stake in differentiation, right? And kind of ensuring that, um, that because we as Latinos know there's diversity, but like in kind of from the outside looking in, right? That there is this, that we're very different and that our histories are different in relationship to the United States, right? So, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Thank you, Dr. Padilla. Now, you mentioned a lot of uh, visible, invisible, and I, I think that this one connects perfectly with the next question that I have for you. Is like, what the cultural politics of non-belonging, who belongs and who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, so obviously this book, I'm looking at how Central Americans are represented in the media, right? In the film industry, right? In, in literature. Um, and that is, um, you know, a form of, of cultural politics, right? And for me, you know, I'm kind of basically saying the way in which we are represented and envisioned plays into the way in which we are imagined as belonging or not belonging, right? And it's also the way in which we ourselves imagine ourselves to belong or not belong, right? within the context of the United States, right? And this to me is within the realm of the cultural, but it's not separated from the realm of the material, right? Like everyday life, right? Because as I make the case, you might see these representations over and over again in the media, right? Of Central American undocumented immigrants or refugees, right? But that has an impact because how is that being used to pass certain legislation, anti-immigrant legislation? Or how is that being used, right, to make a case for closing borders or tighter border security? So um, it has very real implications. So, you know, I talk about cultural politics because it's happening within this realm of politics, but I don't see it as separated from, right, um, other material realities, right, or other realms of what we might call legislation, right? The law or public policy, right? I see them as integrated. 
Dr. Padilla, now that you talk about the, the, the media and this representation, visual representation, of course, if we're talking about films, uh, there are like three stereotypes that I was reading on, on your book. And these are like uh, the, the gun member, the maid, and what you call and what you coin like the forever illegal. Is there something that you would like to mention about these three stereotypes and how narratives and your book counter attack these uh, stereotypes? Yeah, so I think, you know, those are three really important contemporary ones, right? Like I, what I do in the book is kind of talk about the ways in which these are three of like five ways, you know, there's more, but like kind of hegemonic or dominant, right? These are the dominant ways in which when you see Central Americans in movies or in media, right? Or even in literature, like from the 1980s, which is during the, you know, the wars in Central America, where a lot of immigration came or to present day, these are kind of the ways in which they factor, right? Um, and so two things to be said about, you know, the gangbanger and the, the domestica, I think, and the forever legal. So I see these as modern manifestations of what were the guerrilla, the guerrillero, right? The threatening guerrillero of the 1980s in the jungles of Central America, right? And then the refugee, right? which was often feminized, right? A kind of a figure that was victim, that came kind of like in El Norte, you know, that comes, right? And, and is helpless up to a point, right? Doesn't know how to help themselves. So what I see is that, you know, in the 1990s, as we move and as immigration laws change and as, you know, the, the wars end and you have kind of this, this, you have this morphing of what was a threatening guerrero into kind of the, the gangbanger. It's now the gangbanger from Central America. It's the MS-13, you know, La Mara Salvatrucha that is, that is still coming and threatening, right? And it is like the refugee turned kind of domestic. And in fact, there's a lot of, you know, this kind of, uh, kind of vulnerable, exploited laborer, right? That kind of is part of that, that, um, that new manifestation. Um, and then for me, all of them, you know, I, I do distinguish with forever illegal, but all of them are related in some way to being undocumented, right? There's there's an aspect. And, and for me that has, so for me specifically, the idea of the forever legal, one, I take it from the, the idea of, you know, Roque Dalton's poem of Los Eternos Indocumentados, right? The eternal undocumented. Um, but there's two things. There's one, that question that often these representations are of individuals who are in some way undocumented or whose, um, you know, legal status is in question. Like, let's say it's temporary protected status. So it's always liminal, you know, like they, and, and so that's one representation, but there's also the fact that this goes along with what are our immigration laws, right? The impossibility or how difficult it has become for immigrants, right? And, and, and in this case, Central American undocumented immigrants to get access, right? Or a pathway to legal um, residency or citizenship. So in some ways it's like this idea of also, you know, two things, the material reality of how hard it is to, you know, how, how stricter it is. 
And then also the ways in which in the popular imaginary of the US, these people are always illegal, right? They've always been, and I'm using that in quotes, right? Obviously this, the, it's a construction of illegality linked to criminality, linked to unworthiness, undeservingness, right? And that there's never, you know, with very few exceptions, when you think about in particular contemporary media or the most immediate media representations that we've seen of Central Americans, there's very few, you know, there's very little discussion of, of the background of these individuals or, you know, what, what they're fleeing from or what's driving them or, um, you know, you see these depictions of, you know, migrants on top of train cars, right? Like the train cargo trains coming through Mexico. And it's kind of this idea of they're coming, you know, the, 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 this kind of horror to use that language, right? This invasion as a threat, but you don't really, you know, you don't, it's like spectacle. You don't really have any discussion of, of the humanity of them, right? And so I think that it traps them, right? There's this sense that like, they have always been this, you know, like they're beyond this, they're always going to be undocumented, right? They're always gonna be illegal. And so there's that idea. Um, but I'm also using it to think about the nuances. Like, so in the, in the book, I do discuss the history, right? Of US Central American immigration and the nuances because the idea of illegality, right? Has always been constructed. And if I think about quintessentially, it is tied to the Mexican brown body, right? And, and that is a that is a dominant discourse. But you know, I, by by talking about Central Americans in this way, I also want to show that the ways in which being undocumented or illegal are grafted on different populations is different, right? It it happens through different it it happens through the relationship of the United States to Central America, which is different from the relationship of the United States to Mexico. It happens through you know. It happens through the fact that Central Americans go through Mexico oftentimes, and there they experience all sorts of ways of being constructed, right, as, as non-belonging and as illegal bodies. And so I think that I just wanted to show that there's nuances of this, right, in addition to kind of the ways in which we imagine them, right? Um, the idea too that, you know, Latinos, if they're always Mexicano, they're also always foreign in that, that just keeps getting right. perpetuated. Now, Dr. Padilla, because like the previous examples you mentioned, they have this temporary identity. They are constructed temporary. I was wondering why uh, Jose Gutierrez, what, what, like like quoted a green card, green card soldier, why he's so special on your book? I, you know... I actually have always kind of wanted to work on Jose Gutierrez's like case study. And, and so first of all, he is a, you know, um, he was a, a young man from Guatemala who was undocumented, who came to the United States, right? Um, and entered the country, um, claimed, you know, asylum, but also claimed a younger age than he was right, was put into the foster system, um, was able to then, um, you know, basically go to high school, right, and then from that point on, joined the military as a means 
of also getting, you know, residency and citizenships. That is, you know, and of social mobility, but also getting, you know, becoming quote unquote legal, right? Legal, um, legal status. Um, but what was interesting to me is that although certain scholars have talked about him in other contexts, um, he hasn't been discussed in terms of being Central American, right? To the same degree. Like, and in fact, also, while I don't talk extensively about this, I do mention the fact that he's not only, you know, Central American in the sense he's from Guatemala originally, but he's also of indigenous background. And that also gets erased quite a bit in discussion. So he becomes another Latino soldier, right? Like, uh, and what makes him though exceptional is that he was one of the, you know, first casualties in the Iraq war you know, our country's invasion of Iraq in the early 2000s. Um, and the way in which they report about him in, the, in at least the, the newspapers and stuff is, is he is like this hero. All of a sudden he becomes this American hero representing, right, the U.S. And I was interested in how, you know, he's taken his life story post-mortem, post-death, is constructed to fit the ne multiple needs. So in this sense, it becomes a narrative about the exceptional Latino, the good Latino, the good immigrant that died for the country that took him in, right? And also the Latino that loved this country, right? But I kind of like look at it, yeah, but what does it mean that you have to die in order to be accepted, right? To belong or you have to be willing to die because otherwise, if you're, Latino, and in this case, Central American and undocumented, you're not, you know, the, you have to be exceptional to the point of death. And so that, that was one of the cases. And then also because there are counter narratives, right? There is also a, you know, film about him, a documentary film that really challenges a lot of these ideas, you know, that this was much more about surviving. It wasn't necessarily that he wanted to give up his Guatemalan-ness, right? and become fully assimilated and fully American. In fact, that wasn't what he did. And so I think for me, I'm just interested in, in the constructed nature of, of these stories. And at the same time, the fact that we can't know what his real story was. You know, like at the end of the day, I was more interested of how, again, how his life story becomes a way of imagining um, Central Americans, but a way that reaffirms a good immigrant, bad immigrant discourse, right? To the detriment of a lot of immigrants that don't fit into these impossible ideals, right? This ideal of, of, of deserving or merit, right? And which is something that citizens don't, well, citizens that are, you know, citizens of color have to do this, right? But citizens who are not of color, right? Or privileged don't necessarily have to like prove that they're more American, right? Um, in the case of like, as, as I saw here, right? And that's, yeah, but, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, the, the, no uh, I was just uh, curious uh, because you mentioned a lot of like counter narratives and how to promote a different idea of what has been already said. Uh, uh, newer generations, they are using a lot of social media, for example, TikTok, Instagram, so I was wondering, and, and also podcasts, like what we're doing now, uh, like how can people use these spaces 
to tell a different type of story, how they can counter tell what has been already said and how that they can promote their identity, how they can fit or how they can show what has been said was not as right as people thought. So how, how we can battle against all this fake news, fake information that is like moving all around the media? Yeah, I mean, I think social media is a catch-22, right? Because it's where you can, you can put fake news out there, right? You can <laughs> battle with it. And often it's not a space where, while you can, you know, um, point people into more knowledge, right? A lot of people operate with limited knowledge too, right? Like kind of, you know, but I do think I mentioned this, you know, like I said, I work in this book for good or bad, because there's limits, as I mentioned, to working with dominant, right? Dominant representations, which happen in very, you know, in the spaces of, of Hollywood and in the spaces of, you know, um, literature, right? Like published. So there's there's limits to that, right? And there are representations that reaffirm very narrow constructions, for instance, in terms of race. And you and I have talked a little bit about this, but you know, what's represented is the Latino mestizo, right? So what you don't see is you don't see that much indigeneity, right? In terms of like these representations with the exception of El Norte and even that has some problems in how it represents indigeneity. And you certainly don't see um, blackness in terms of Central American communities. Um, nor do you see much about LGBTQ populations, right? So this is a very kind of heteronormative, mestizo, imagine, imaginary, right? Like, or imagine construction of who Central Americans are in those stereotypes that I mentioned. So one way I think social media is very good, like, especially if I think about like, you know, on Instagram and Twitter for pushing back and kind of complicating these ideas about you know, Black Centroamericanos and Indigenous Centroamericanos and LGBTQ Centroamericanos, right? And kind of like these conversations that they rightfully are pointing out that in, a, in including a lot of scholarship isn't taking it up, right? And also thinking about, well, what about Los Panameños? What about these other groups? Like it's not only Salvadoreños, Guatemaltecos. And I say this recognizing what my book project is particularly about and its limits, right? That that's not, I hint toward that, but that wasn't my focus, you know? Um, and it was a book project started 10 years ago and a lot has changed in that time, you know, in terms of that. Um, so I do think that that opens a space. And I also think that it opens a space for thinking about narratives that are not linked to trauma. And I say this recognizing also, right? the focus that I have wanted to look at, right? Because I see a lot of like emphasis on like the beauty of Centro America, right? And, and kind of other, you know, and, and kind of agency, right? And thinking about coalition and thinking about these spaces that are not just about the trauma migration of war, even though that is really important. And I say this because I don't think we've done enough to even talk about that yet. But at the same time, I recognize that it's always like for other groups too, that emphasis, right? Negates the possibility sometimes of us thinking about these other things that happen 
right? That are also, you know, as important to how we belong and don't belong, <laughs> right? Like that has to do with, with experiences of like being, I have pride in, in this background and like this food and this culture. And especially for those of us in the diaspora who don't, right? Who, who are in my case, the, the daughter of immigrants or came as young or don't have any connection, right? Don't have the, the privilege of being able to go back um, and forth or probably don't, you know, you don't have to want to go back. But, you know, I was and am able to go back and forth, but that is not the case. Um, so I think that, that social media can, can do that. That's ways in which you counter these narratives of saying, like, we're very complex. We're not just these things. Right. And we're not just defined no, by I, these experiences. Well, to thank you for, for of course, uh, sharing your work. And I have two last questions for you. Uh, where can people buy your book? So it's available like on Amazon or, you know, UT Press, like whatever. You just Google it and you'll be able to find it. Yeah. Perfect. And then uh, the second question, and because we're celebrating the Latin Heritage Month, esta pregunta es en español. Um, lo que le quería preguntar es un plato típico que le recuerde su niñez. En mi caso, yo comienzo para darle tiempo que usted piense su respuesta en mi caso es la sopa de mondongo. Mondongo eh, viene siendo una parte de, para la, la, las personas que nos escuchan, una parte del estómago de, de la vaca, que si no estoy mal, eh, en la comida mexicana le dicen menudo, pero la consistencia entre la sopa de menudo y la sopa de mondongo de Colombia, Barranquilla, es la consistencia. Nosotros le echamos mucha yuca, papa y... Y pues, bueno, es, es, es un plato típico que me recuerda mucho a, a mi país y obviamente a mi ciudad. En su caso, doctora Padilla, algo que nos quiera compartir en esa, en esa cuestión. Bueno, claro, mira, estoy pensando, obviamente serían, hay cosas típicas, uno dice pupusas o lo que sea, pero en mi caso, si estoy hablando de comida casera, porque en mi caso... Mi tía y mi abuela hacían pupusas, pero realmente no mi mamá, ¿verdad? Pero estoy pensando cosas que me recuerdan. Uno sería la sopa de res. Hay la sopa de res que también um, la hacen los mexicanos, ¿verdad? Pero incluso aquí, cuando estoy aquí, voy a, a Angela's Bakery y ordeno la sopa de res ah. ahí, ¿verdad? Porque la hacen al estilo salvadoreño. Um, okay. Y yo diría también el atol de maicena. Entonces, do, ese do, sería el otro. Pregunta. Bueno, ya, ya que usted mencionó a Angela's Bakery para, para otros hispanos en la zona que, que quisieran degustar eh, comida salvadoreña, además de Angela Bakery, ¿hay algún otro lugar de la zona en Northwest Arkansas que usted recomiende que debamos visitar? Mira, yo sé que hay otros, yo no, realmente me han dicho de la sirenita, pero no lo conozco tan bien, ¿verdad? Ah, muy bien. Me han dicho que está excelente. Ya fui. Bueno, excelente. Bueno. Yo lo digo porque como en Andrews Baker los, los platos típicos que no son pupusa están buenos y también me encanta el desayuno salvadoreño, que son los plátanos fritos con frijol, you know, pan francés, eh, queso seco, y los huevos picados, ¿verdad? Pero que llevan como eh, cebolla, tomate y chile verde. Oh, wow. muy bueno. <risa> bueno, de, después de eso, quedo con mucha yeah. hambre. 
Eh, doctor Padilla, muchas gracias por, por, por su tiempo, gracias por compartir su trabajo y no sé si hay algo más que quiera decir. No, de nada, no, gracias por la oportunidad y, y, y por compartir, ¿verdad? Y por tener estas discusiones, que es lo que en parte es lo que uno quiere eh, cuando escribe este tipo de libro, ¿no? Y hace este tipo de investigación, es tener discusión sobre los temas. Gracias. Well, it looks like the episode is over. Thank you to the Program of Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies. Thank you to Dr. Padilla for accepting the invitation. And I hope you join us next time in another episode of whatever we're calling this. Nos vemos. <laughs> <laughs>